This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. How are you doing today, Joris? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, so I'm on vacation, and so that's really good. And then as a top it off on my uh, vacation, I have a, a podcast. So the, that's a Ooh, whole, uh, wonderful day. Awesome. That's a cool day. Yeah. Well, who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Um, well, today we've got uh, Mitch Altman. Mitch Altman is a uh, an inventor. He's a hacker. He's a teacher. Uh, he's somebody who was doing like FPJs and virtual reality like 20 years before it was cool, like in the 90s and stuff. And uh, originally starting like a, as an engineer, he worked for a company called VPL Research. He then was a co-founder of Threeware and AMCC. Uh, and then later on, he did a ton of stuff. Like, uh, for example... He's one of the, the founders of of Cornfield Electronics, and that's a company that makes the TV be gone, which is what he invented, and that, that'll let you turn off television. So if you're like in a, um, you know, in a gate near a gate of an aircraft at an airport, and you don't like the TV, you can turn it off. That's intrusive television. And he's also one of the co-founders of Noisebridge, which is, I think, the first hackerspace in the United States of America. So uh, it's a real honor to have uh, Mitch here today. So so thanks for coming to the show, uh, Mitch. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so, so Mitch, like, first off, like, if you're looking at open source hardware, is that something you think is a hobby? Is it a business? Is it something that can save humanity? Is it all of these things? How do you look at open source hardware? Well, I don't know about saving humanity. Uh, we don't seem to be, to be on a good course in that regard, but it can help. And um, the more people do open hardware, the more people can learn and uh, benefit from each other without obstacles in the path. And of course, everything can be a hobby, but I've made a living on my project TV Be Gone, which is open hardware for the last 19 years. And one of the reasons that I've been able to make uh, a living from it is because it's open source. As a small company, there's no way I would be able to afford all the PR that I get for free <laughs> from people who make it. I don't make any money when people make it on their own, but boy, they tell other people because they're super enthusiastic about it. And if people like <laughs> what they're hearing, then uh, some percentage of those people will actually buy my thing. But it's not just small companies that benefit from it. It's big companies as well. They get a lot of good uh, free will, uh, or free goodwill, I should say, uh, from people spreading the joy of these projects. And many, many people all over the world help them for free. And uh, But, but uh, open hardware doesn't mean working for free necessarily, but a lot of people do because it's, they're so enthusiastic about it. A lot of people work on open hardware and open software projects uh, for companies who pay them a very decent living wage for uh, the work they do. Uh, it's just that there are no, not impediments in the way for people to enthusiastically help with the project and learn from it and then innovate and make new projects and then give them credit where it's due for the innovations that are made later. And then everyone benefits, including the originators. So this is something that has been spreading for a long time. When I made TV Be Gone, there weren't many people doing open hardware. Uh, but right about that same time, I met Lamar Freed and Phil Tyrone, who are Adafruit Industries now, a big open hardware company. 
And uh, since then, Seed Studio in, uh, in uh, Shenzhen, China, and uh, some companies, smaller companies in San Francisco, such as Evil Mad Scientist, and also uh, SparkFun have been doing lots of open hardware and spreading the joy that way. Um, but back then, there weren't many people, but meeting Lemore and Phil, we all inspired each other and probably them more, way more than me uh, towards me, uh, inspired me to make TVP Gone open source, open hardware. And uh, like I said, that's why it was successful. Without that, I definitely would have been, would not have been making a living doing this for the last 19 years. I was just curious on the TV be gone. Did, did you have a fun, like inspirational moment that was like, aha, I need this. I've mentioned this a lot in talks that I've given, but my, my childhood was really not fun and I was super depressed and I would try to escape into television. And so much of my life, my childhood went away just staring at a screen like uh, so many people are still doing today. But uh, yeah, I, I tried to escape with television and I, I eventually decided that I wanted to live and I quit. But I was 23 years old when I did that in 1980. Uh, in 1980, there were not televisions in public places. And people who weren't really alive back then probably will find it hard to imagine that there weren't TVs everywhere. We're just so used to it, we, we barely notice it anymore. But by 1990s, the early 1990s, they started to pop up and they were really out of place. The kinds of places that had them were like really bad takeout Chinese restaurants. And I happened to be in a you know, not so bad, but pretty bad Chinese restaurant in Silly Valley with some friends who I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And we were there to catch up with each other uh, for lunchtime and uh, in between, um, you know, lunchtime where we're working and um, the TV was on. We didn't have all that much time. It was lunchtime, but the TV was on. And we kept watching the TV and I kept watching the TV. It was distraction. And I kept telling myself not to look at that TV this force that had taken away my childhood, you know, I had some responsibility with that too, of course, but it took away my childhood. And here it was in this room. I don't want to pay attention to it and I can't not pay attention to it. And so I started telling my friends and they were telling me, yeah, we can't, each of them said, I can't not pay attention to it as well. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to get rid of these distractions? And instantly I knew that there was a way because the oh. controls are pretty easy to make. And right. Conceptually, it's pretty easy. You just have an off code, uh, one after the other after the other, each, each make and model and turn it off. And one of my friends there instantly came up with the name TVB Gone. So that was 1993, but it took me 10 years to make time in my life to actually uh, make the thing. And uh, once I started, I became obsessed and it took a year and a half rather than a few weeks like I thought, but I eventually did it and uh, it turned out to be popular <laughs> and I've been making a living from it ever since. So, so when are you going to make like like iPhone be gone? Because yeah, that was literally <laughs> exactly. I want like three G be gone. <laughs> uh, well, a lot of a lot of conspiracy theorists theorists would really love five G be gone, but uh, it's really easy to make such things. It's just that it's illegal, so uh, I won't darn be those laws selling those. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be making millions. I know there's okay. a market for it. I have a I have a a librarian that's constantly asking me to make one for them because they're sick of the parents staring at their phones and not paying attention to their kids at the library. 
Oh, there's lots of, you know, there was this uh, record shop in San Francisco, a small one, but pretty famous one. And the people there who worked there were so upset that people would come in and treat them like, uh, you know, people to serve them. And while they're talking on their phones. And so they installed a cell phone blocker in their little record shop illegally. But uh, uh, that record shop's gone. So I can tell that story. Fair enough. So first of all, I think, well, let's rewind a little bit, because I think one of the interesting things is that you right now you, you resemble a little bit of like the, the Forrest Gump of the electronic era, because you were at one point doing this stuff like virtual reality, FPGAs. When you were doing FPGAs, it was relatively niche, and all the stuff that people have come up with to do with FPGAs have, have not been invented. And also, you guys, you were involved in one of the first kind of like arm-like kind of fabulous semiconductor firms as well. So it's, it's insane all the stuff you've been involved with. So let's rewind a little bit. Like first off, so when you guys got started with like fabulous semiconductor, was that something that you thought was going to, is it, you, you know, you just didn't have the money to do it any other way or was that the future or the, yeah, the impetus there? I was one of the, the co-founders of Threeware that made very inexpensive RAID controllers. And for people who don't know what that is, most people don't know. Uh, it's a card that plugs into a computer and a lot of inexpensive disk drives plug into it. And then the computer sees a really fancy, super fast disk drive. Um, so you can have lots of mass storage with redundancy. So if one of the drives dies, you don't lose your data. And anyways, to do this is a very, very complicated project, unlike TV Be Gone, which conceptually anyways is quite simple. This one took, oh, many, 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 many months to get just the architecture down. And um, back then, this was 1997, in order to make your own chip, an ASIC was very, very expensive and of course, very error prone. And a small company, if you make a mistake, you, it, it's like a million dollars gone down the drain. Um, well, not totally gone because you can iterate and hopefully the second time you don't, uh, uh, you have a good chip. But if you had an FPGA, um, which were somewhat new at the time, not totally new, um, you could iterate just like with software because that's really what it is. It's hardware that you program uh, to become the hardware that you want with, with uh, text on a screen. And that's what we did. And once you have that, then you can make an ASIC. And it turned out, though, that that's a very, as it's a very expensive um, thing to do, we, our first product used FPGA for quite a while before we raised the money to use, um, to make our own ASIC. So that was a really good way to develop hardware, and it still is. Bootstrapped off the FPGA before you could find the ability to actually do a fab production of it. Yeah, because... I'm curious, how long did you spend on the FPGA? Like, was it years? Like, two or three years? Or was it longer until you got to a volume big enough to justify going to fabrication? It's sort of as an aside, but uh, relevant here. Uh, I have a very low threshold of pain when it comes to jobs. And um, <laughs> this this company that I started was super fascinating for the first uh, half year. But when the VCs 
came in and of course they do what VCs all venture capitalists, the investors, uh, vulture capitalists, as they're called in Silly Valley, uh, for good reason. They, they take over. That's what they always do. And when they do, the culture of the company changes and the founders usually complain. And then the, the VCs, the investors just fire the founders. And that's totally normal. And that's what happened at this place too. I wasn't fired because I quit long before that happened. Uh, due to my low threshold of pain. So I was there for about two years, a little bit less, and then I did some consulting for them. But um, the first uh, several months, we had uh, an FPGA development board. And with that, we could actually make some proof of concept versions of the board that we wanted to make, uh, this RAID controller board. And, And we did. And it showed that this was very much possible, making it so that it was super uh, solid and no one would lose their data. People tend to get quite upset if (laughs) a product you give them makes them lose their data. So um, they didn't stripe it properly. (laughs) Yeah, that's part of it. And, And to recover actually recover if, if a disc fails. So, um, to get all that down took a long, long, long time. And, uh, by the time I quit, that was way solid. Um, and then I was doing consulting for the, um, uh, manufacturing process, uh, the test at the end of the manufacturing process. That was my main thing then. And other people were doing all the final details for making the product uh, way better. Um, but our first product was out by then and it was profitable and it was with FPGAs because uh, it worked so well and they were inexpensive enough and getting it to that point uh, after we had the proof of concept took hmm, several more months, but we could iterate on that while we were developing our product and we could do that in a very timely way with the VCs, the investors breathing down our neck, giving us artificial deadlines so that they could make it look good so they could sell stock for hopefully $200 a piece, which of course never happened. But VCs dream all the time, or is it a nightmare? I can't tell. It's a Um, nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so anyways, yeah, the FPGAs we had for, um, yeah, a couple of years before we had the money to make our own chips, uh, ASICs. And, and does it surprise you how big this FBGA ASIC kind of path to market has become? Or was it really clear that like, oh my God, this is the only thing that really works if you want to do, you know, something, a kind of custom computing solution by yourself? Or did you do, was it a goldmine or was it just the only path you guys had? It was really the only path we had, um, but it was really clear that this was something that a, a lot of people are going to make use of uh, now that it's available. Uh, and now from the 1997 perspective, and even still today, now, AC, uh, I'm sorry, FPGAs are quite inexpensive. You can get really small ones, and there's even open hardware versions of FPGAs, and then people can make open hardware at a much lower level. Uh, up until that came out, open hardware meant you had to use these proprietary chips made by all these different companies. And now, uh, the the chip itself is still made by the companies, not in someone's uh, lab or kitchen, but you make the contents of it as open hardware if you want to. So it's, it's pretty interesting and it's way, way, way popular. Um, at all these hacker conferences that I go to around the world, 
lots of people are giving FPGA workshops so that total beginners, even people who've never played with electronics before, can do really cool things, uh, cool, cool projects, whether it's blinking lights or making little things that roam around or vibrate. Uh, or super sophisticated things. Um, there are workshops at it, all these hacker conferences. And at Hacker Spaces, uh, there are a lot of people playing with these and sharing what they know with other people and giving workshops there as well. What's your opinion of the Arduino? Because like, if you look at this FPGA new path, the Arduino has been so popular that it's kind of... It's kind of, on the one hand, it's empowered so many people because it's a platform that so many people build projects on with the Altoid box and all the stuff around it that it's been really easy to yeah, buy the same hardware, try it yourself. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of like, it's also quite really limiting, isn't it? Or, or do you think it's just, it's just a complete godsend? Or... Well, it's, it's limiting compared to um, the super powerful chips that are in our, uh, our modern phones or in our laptops or tablets. But you can do so, so, so much within those limitations, uh, especially for people who are learning. Uh, I give workshops all the time. One workshop I give, which is probably my most popular workshop still after all these years, is Arduino for Total Newbies. Newbie being the, the word quite often used for people who are new to anything. And it's not a put down at all. That's just where people start. Where <laughs> there, there was a sign in a school that I was giving workshops in, um, in China, of all places. It said, uh, a master was once an amateur. And... Um, all, all, all masters were once an amateur. And this is so true. So beginning from knowing nothing is the best place to start. And you can learn a lot very quickly uh, about electronics and programming microcontrollers, computer chips with Arduinos. And in my workshop, I teach people who know nothing enough so that they know how a TV be gone works and enough to read a schematic and then wire it up and make a TV be gone and then the screen that I'm using to present with is target practice by the end of the workshop. And everyone is able to do that at the end of the workshop. And it's very, very powerful. But Arduino is powerful enough that I use it all the time. And I'm not a newbie anymore. I was when I was uh, a teenager, but I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm 66. Uh, I know this stuff really well, but it's a really fast way to get a proof of concept or even a whole project together before I put a lot of time and energy into making it more for uh, more for real and then put it out into the world where I can share it with other people. Uh, I couldn't agree more on that, by the way. I use them yeah. all the time for the same purposes. Oh. I, I just use them for quickie prototypey, does this work proof of concept, and then you know half of them you go, oh, that was a stupid idea, and throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. It's good to know. It's a, and I think that's really, un, un, not a lot of people spend that much attention on looking at how the business impact of this Arduino stuff. I think it, it could be considerable if, if you see how many people like are just inventing stuff with this generally, right? So, so I think it's interesting that the, you brought up, of course, your 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 cor well, first of your courses because you tried to teach me how to solder once, and I think you you tried to teach many many people how to solder as well, right? That's another course you give, right? Yeah, I've succeeded for pretty much everyone as well. Uh, I've, I I I I don't have an accurate number, but I estimate at this point that it's uh, close to a hundred thousand people that I've taught to solder. 
Uh, 100,000 people and me. And then, nice. <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, and then, so why is this teaching thing? Are you just addicted to it? Because it seems like the first part of your career, you're just an engineer. And then on one point, you decide to refurbish computers, right? And that's kind of, is that your first time kind of looking this whole, like this this mine of, of hardware we have on this planet? Is that the first time you looked at it? Or were you always kind of this hacker person? And did you then end up in, in that area? Yeah. Well, this goes back to my childhood again. Um, it, it really was really awful. And um, I, I used to think that it was really a sad comment on the U.S. education system that out of all of the years of education that I had from uh, age six to age 25, um, I only had five really good teachers. But studies have shown that in the U.S., the uh, hardly anyone in the U.S. had one good teacher. So I was actually quite lucky to have five. And without those five good teachers who were supportive at a time when I really needed, I don't think I would have survived. I was that depressed. This is part of paying that forward. And even though my mom, uh, she was a wonderful human being, but she was a really terrible mother. And it was cool that we could talk about all of that when we were adults. But uh, one of the things that made her a really cool and interesting, wonderful human being was, was that she was a really good teacher. And uh, she taught kids with learning disabilities. Even before I was a teenager, she had me come into her classes and share some of the things that I do, some of my you know, little projects, making buzzers or little games or an intercom where people could talk to each other across the room. Not that you needed it, you could just talk, but, uh, but it was fun. And these kids had very little in the way of a sense of accomplishment in their lives. And they were bullied way more than I was. And they had so low self-esteem, but doing these things for them, they totally lit up um, much as I did with these five really good teachers that I had. And that made me realize that I could share with people the way that these five good teachers did for me, although at the time I didn't even have five yet. But anyways, as, as I did have the experiences eventually with five really good teachers, uh, I felt it my obligation to do this as much as I can for other people. Okay, that's that, that sounds really wonderful. I think I think you're very I did, indeed. You think I think you're very lucky to have five good teachers. I think, and and if you have somebody that has a background like you, I don't know how deep you want to go into that. I mean, we we, you know, okay. So your youth was bad, and it had something to do with parenting and opportunities and things like this, right? Is that enough, or do you want to go a little bit deeper into it? I'm, I'm okay with whatever you feel. What, with- uh, however- how I learned to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, that's a question I Basically. wanted to ask afterwards. But yeah, sure. This is We can skip to how do you learn to live. Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I could go off at that at, on that at length. Um, and I, I'm happy to share whatever. But, you know, being totally depressed, blaming myself for being bullied. And my parents were depressed as well. They couldn't deal with their own pain, let alone mine. And I was super full of rage about that as a kid. But as uh, an adult, I realized that they did the best they could. And that opened up the ability for me to become friends with them. And we could actually talk about all of these things along with my two other brothers as well. And uh, and all of that's really, really healing. And, and in a sense, I'm really lucky to be able to have that rather than just having the need to go on this healing process unilaterally on my own through life. Since I was so depressed as a kid and, and somehow I managed to choose to live and, and survive, I needed to make choices in order to 
make it uh, make my life one that I felt was meaningful and worth living. And that took a lot of, of trial and error. And as I see it, uh, that set me up, given my geeky background and my willingness to experiment. I was really experimenting on my life. And this is what I now see as a hacker mindset. And hacking has all sorts of different definitions, but the positive definition that we use at hacker spaces, hacker conferences, uh, and many other places is to make use of resources that we have available to us in the whole world and use them for what we feel is worthwhile. And it doesn't have to be what they were put there for uh, or what other people feel they're there for. Um, we can do what we want with them. And I was doing that not only with uh, things available to make projects in electronics and mechanics and all the things I did and also art, but on myself, because there's a lot of resources available to improve one's life and to then share that with others to help them improve their life as lives as they see it which then shares back to me so I can learn from them and we're all learning from each other. And iteratively, with lots of ups and downs, non-linearly, I eventually got to a place where I realized that I could live with depression and I could accept all of myself for who I am. And that wasn't an easy road, but it was, as it turns out, very worthwhile and rewarding. And that's part of what I like sharing with other people as well. Um, you know, and just whatever, I, I can share my experiences. Everyone has to make choices for themselves and there's no one right way to live. But we all have to, uh, well, we, we don't have to do anything. But if we want to live lives that we find fulfilling and meaningful, we need to find ways of discovering what's meaningful for ourselves. And we can do that on our own, but we can do that much better in community that works for us. And there's so little community in our lives. And that's one of the reasons why I was so inspired to create Hackerspaces um, starting in 2007. And Noisebridge was one of the first ones in the US, not uh, the first, because there were several of us creating Hackerspaces at the same time uh, in New York City, San Francisco, and DC were the, the three kind of main ones that grew out of this hacker scene in Germany led by the Chaos Computer Club, who are a whole bunch of, you know, just geeky people who loved coming together and sharing what they do with other people. And in 2007, I was at one of their conferences giving a talk about TV Be Gone, of all things. And there were these people who did a bunch of, bunch of research of what worked well and didn't work so well for the couple dozen or so hackerspaces at the time in Germany and uh, shared that with us. Um, and that inspired us to start hackerspaces when we got home. And for me, this was a big part of my healing process. That wasn't the purpose of hackerspaces, but hackerspaces are quite often really good community, which becomes part of the healing process for a lot of people. And that's part of its magic when you create an excuse for people to come together and they bond, this kind of magic happens. And I like creating the uh, infrastructure for that kind of magic. When you first tried to open them in the U.S., 
uh, you have to secure space and all that. I, I'm curious how you guys got people to join, or was it very much just that direct community initially? I mean, I, I, you know, Wobble, the company that I formed comes out of a hacker space at the end of the day, uh, the Artisans Asylum out of Boston. Thank you for creating or helping to bring these to the United States because I found it extremely useful, but I didn't really stumble into those until like 2010. And, you know, when we were first helping to create the Artisans Asylum, it was literally above an auto body shop. Uh, a machine transmission. So we always found it difficult to get space and to explain to people that people would come to this thing. Did you have those kinds of same problems, I guess, in starting these hacker spaces in the U.S.? No. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was at the Artists' Asylum's first space. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, you remember that one. <laughs> Literally upstairs above the transmission shop. <laughs> yeah. And these people with all these amazing um, uh, tools for making mechanical things. But yeah, you know, like NoiseBridge, NYC Resistor, and HackDC are the three uh, hackerspaces that really started this whole sort of modern hackerspace movement that we, we kind of fantasized about that, but we, we, we didn't really believe it. But it just took off because so many people were yearning for what hackerspaces offer in uh, predominantly community and also support for exploring and learning and growing and all of that stuff. And so many people grew um, uh, small businesses, some that became quite big, like MakerBot, you know, uh, out of a hackerspace. But when we were starting, there was there were really two of us at the very beginning, me and my friend Jake. And then very quickly, there were three, then four, then five. And then we were meeting every Tuesday, which is one of the, the, the what they, these people who researched uh, what worked well and not so well in hackerspaces, they came up with patterns of what worked well and not so well. And these patterns are what we made use really good use of. One of the patterns is meet once a week. Um, even if you have nothing to say, just meet. And this creates a heartbeat for people to come together and, um, and uh, stuff grows from that just kind of automatically. And by a few months into it, we had outgrown meeting at a cafe uh, and then a bigger restaurant that had a big room. And we were meeting at one of the people's huge warehouse spaces, uh, which existed at the time in San Francisco. And there were over 50 people coming to these meetings every week. And so I knew people, Jake knew people, the people we knew knew people, those people knew people. And by the time we had 50 or more people at every weekly meeting, all of those 50 people knew people. And it was a very exciting prospect for people to think there might be the ability to have a space that you could go to right here at home in San Francisco, where I lived at the time, all day, all night to hang out with cool, geeky, weirdo people just like me and um, to learn all these things, because as much as I know about certain things, there's so much I don't know. And, you know, and I can share what I know with other whatever, all this stuff, the cool things that happen at every hacker conference would be at home all day, all night, all year round. And a lot of people thought that that was so excited. So we never had a problem with not having enough energy from people to pour into making it real. You know, one of the realities of starting a space is, like you said, getting a, a place to have, you know, it's a physical place. You've got to pay for that somehow. Someone either owns it or you rent it. And in San Francisco, that is incredibly expensive as it was and is in Boston. 
and um, or Somerville as it was. And uh, how do you get that money? Well, it, it turns out there were a so many people with no time but some money because they work all the time at places like Google or whatever. And then there are all these other people with no money, but they have plenty of time to pour into things. And the combination of all that and all the people in between uh, just came together automatically without even trying. Uh, that was my experience and the experience of so many people in hackerspaces around the world, and I've been to several hundred of them, is somewhat similar in, in the abstract, although in different communities, there's different things that are easy and different things that are challenging. But somehow, when enough people come together wanting it to work, it works. I think it's wonderful. It's also this wonderful that you where you you read you you reference this document, this building a hackerspace document, which is still online and it's still useful. I was uh, uh, co-founding a hackerspace in Eindhoven in, in the Netherlands uh, in was it two thousand uh, was it fourteen or something like that, and we still use that document and it's really great. Like like uh, and like for example, the, these patterns are like problem. You need to raise funds, and then the answer is buy a pallet of club matter to sell. <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like literally you could just hear it's like it's like it's like it's like you know it's like almost like autistic and it's kind of like it's just really really clear and really really wonderful and it's all these like uh, patterns I think it's absolutely fantastic and, and, and how many of these patterns come back when you have a hackerspace uh, mm-hmm. and then you're in the middle of your weekly meeting everyone's yelling nothing gets done <laughs> this is like totally that sounds um, about right and, yeah I know, but then the answer is many geeks have poor debate skills a result of years of flame wars on the internet you know stuff like that and it's like it's like it's it's still the perfect document if you're if you're interested um i think you can still find it online it's uh it's called uh building a hackerspace by jens oleg and lars weiler and it's, yeah. it's, it's it's and it's still fantastic <laughs> so so i think that's wonderful do you have a idea of like because for hackerspace is like you know what makes them successful in your eyes because like definitely look at this document if you want to do one but is it is it just you need this hardcore of people that keep putting in the time is that the most important thing or well, it's, it's definitely one of the things, but, you know, we, we all need community uh, and, and geeks have this one way that has been proven to work for us, the hackerspaces, um, you know, and uh, y- you really need one or two or three or some uh, number of people who just have this obsession with making it happen. And then they tell people who tell people who tell people and you follow those patterns, meet every week. But the, the main thing is to imagine what you want from your hackerspace. And if, if, if it's you or one or two or three other people, uh, do that together, but art, articulate that, you know, close your eyes, imagine what it's like to be there. What activities are going on? What does it feel like? Um, what kinds of people are there? These are, this is where you're going, to, you're going to spend a lot of time. So imagine what that's like and then write that down and then articulate that in a short form as um, a, a, a mission statement and a vision statement. And then you can start, uh, you know, give a name to it (laughs) and it can change too, but then you can get a website and then somewhere along the way, there's going to be someone who's at least okay enough at design that you can come up with a logo so you can make a sticker with the website address on it, URL, and then you hand that to everyone and you just tell everyone about it and you don't shut up about it. And then um, word gets around and you're meeting every week. And so people can start coming to their your meetings. And if it's for them, they'll keep doing it. Um, and and the enough 
people will join that and eventually there will be enough energy to people will know it's time to start looking for a space and once a space that's appropriate is found everyone just seems to know it and yeah and then you're 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 there <laughs> and then um it's not it can't be the same people pouring all of their energy into it otherwise they burn out and we've all experienced that in various aspects of our lives whether it's at work or uh, in our families or whatever uh burnout is is a real thing we have to take care of ourselves and we have to have a community that's functional so that people remind other people that maybe as cool as all the stuff you're doing maybe you can take a step back and let some other people do stuff so that but if, if you don't do that then um when you can't do it for whatever reason then the whole thing will fall apart because no one has practice in doing uh, all the things that need to be done. So anyways, there's there's lots of uh, nitty gritty in all of this. And uh, now probably isn't the time to get into all of that. But it does really all work when you get enough people together who want to make things work, no matter how you organize yourself, whether you're a bunch of weirdo, hippie, punk anarchists, uh, freaks like at Noisebridge, or if you're a bunch of totally organized Silly Valley people with lots of rules so everyone knows what responsibilities there are and what, what needs to be done, like uh, um, Hacker Dojo and Mountain View, whatever, anything in between and all around, when you get enough people who want it to work, people make it work. Another thing is, like, I remember, like, when we got started with our hackerspace, uh, we were kind of also like, you know, some people were just like, do we need new members? Can it just be us? You know? <laughs> and then other people were like, oh my God, we have to have these repair labs where people come in with their own things and we repair them. And these same people were like, um, other people, uh, you know, and then we're also talking about things like corporate sponsorship and, and commercial, like, like, you know, where would you be on this? You know, should you get all the money you can from the members? Or should you be open to sponsoring? Because that was a really long, really tough discussion for us to, you know, how commercial we should be, let's say. Yeah, well, these aren't easy, easy questions or and there's no easy answers. It depends on the group, the individuals that make up the group. Um, Noisebridge, we never had any sponsorship. And we also uh, got, uh, never had anything that cost money. We had events where people were encouraged to donate if they could. But that was never a requirement. And when I left San Francisco in um, 2017, uh, after you know over 10 years of doing Noisebridge, um, there was $350,000 in the bank. And that's almost entirely from lots and lots and lots of individual small donations. I was the treasurer for the first year and a half, so I know a lot about that. Other hackerspaces will make different decisions. And there's no... Uh, right and wrong other than what is right and wrong for the individuals that make up the community. So some places it can be a club just for five people or 50 people, whatever, and new people uh, might come along, but it's a difficult process. That's totally fine if that's what the group wants. Uh, at Noisebridge, we were totally open. Uh, anyone could walk in at any time. And if it was, you were new, you'd get a tour, so you would know what the place is about, what it isn't about, and then people would know what they're getting involved with. 
And then if someone else came by a few minutes later, the person who just got the tour could give the tour to that person. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like this was like a total utopia where there were never any problems. There were serious ups and downs, but the culture that we formed was strong enough that we could overcome all of the downs and really make use of the ups and cruise at all the other times. And, um, and it's still going really, really well now um, in 2023, 16 years later. So uh, it's a lot of work. Community, just like all relationships, are a lot of work. And sometimes that work is absolutely no fun. Just like all relationships, there's times when any relationship, no matter how good it is overall, is, is going to feel like pretty yucky. And um, is it worth going through that? Well, that's up to each of the individuals as well. In my way of looking at it, which is, again, kind of hippie anarchist, weirdo punk kind of a way, everyone has to feel overall that they're getting more out than they put in. And if that's the case, then it's working really well. Okay, okay. And let's talk a little bit about the maker movement, because that, that also was initially seemed very kind of punk. Uh, and then it kind of got, I guess, like McDonaldified, I think by Make Magazine and stuff, it kind of became very much more a sad, true, but also kind of more boring version of itself. So they won. <laughs> yeah, what? The, the maker movement won. That, well, okay, okay. What, you, you know, I'm just saying, like, it, it, it won, and then, yeah, it became mainstream as a result. Yeah, well, well, the thing is, they weren't separate at the beginning. So before the word maker existed, the word hacker existed in the form that I was talking about earlier. Then Dale Doherty, who started Make Magazine, uh, was seeing that all of this kind of experimenting uh, that was going on when he was a kid and when I was a kid uh, kind of fell by the wayside as chips became more and more integrated and it was harder to get... um, uh, the plans for things, things were becoming more and more proprietary. But once the internet started taking off in the World Wide Web, there was again a whole bunch of people sharing with one another and excited about it. And Dale saw that and saw that there was community involved with that. And he thought starting a magazine that harkened back to the days of popular electronics, which was a, a popular uh, when I was a kid in, in the U.S., And there were similar kind of magazines in Europe and uh, Make Magazine made that cool again. And after a year of that, he saw that there was way more community than he even imagined. And he thought it would be even better if there was a physical event where people came together. And that was the birth of Maker Faire. And I was at that first one um, in 2006. And this was just before the, it was a year later that, this uh, Jens Olik and, and Lars um, did this presentation about uh, hacker de- hackerspace design patterns, but the hackerspaces and make magazine maker fairs were helping one another. And when I went to the first maker fair, I was talking with all these people about all of these geeky things. And there wasn't a maker movement, there wasn't a hackerspace movement, but it was all hacking and making cool things and sharing and learning from one another and hacker spaces and maker fairs weren't all that far from one another, except that the first maker fair had this big Microsoft pavilion that no one went to. And um, <laughs> everyone was just hanging out at every these little, little geeky tables where people were showing off their stuff. So, um, but it wasn't until later 
that, well, in 2008, we started hackerspaces.org in order to make it easier for people to coordinate with one another and learn from one another. And where we could post more patterns as we learn what works well and doesn't work so well for all these spaces. The thing is, though, Make Magazine was part of O'Reilly Media, and so was Maker Faire, and that's a for-profit corporation. And uh, Tim O'Reilly pretty much insisted that all of these aspects of O'Reilly Media paid their own way, uh, which is kind of reasonable for a for-profit corporation. But Maker Faire was always losing money, and so they were growing uh, to try to make up for it in volume, but it it was the opposite. They were losing more money. And Make Magazine was never all that profitable. And they were trying to get more money in to help it pay for itself. But eventually, you can't really sell community as a product. That just didn't work very well. And it eventually all went out of business. And they, they, they're kind of regrowing it again. It came together again, and they're regrowing it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think it would work much better as a non-profit. But again, all of that is is pretty much what you said. As it became more and more known, it's above the radar, and there are all the we're surrounded by capitalism, right? So with capitalism, any way that can be money can be made, it will be. And so anything that's popular, there's going to be people trying to find ways of making money with it and capitalize with it uh, on it, and that's of course what happened. But that doesn't mean that all of the different communities go the same way. There's nothing wrong with getting sponsorship if the the sponsorship sort of fits in with the vision and the mission of the community, of the organization. There is nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it could be a really good thing. But like with all money, all sources of income, there are strings attached. Are those strings ones that you want? Or are they ones that are going to be getting in your way? Are they ones? Are they uh, strings that are going to be helping you in your mission and your vision? for all involved? Is it going to enhance the feeling that everyone's getting more out than they put in? Or is it going to do the opposite? Or is it just innocuous and it's just there? You know, so everyone can take all of that into account when they're pondering these questions and coming up with their own answers. So I don't think it's a question of winning and losing. Um, It's a question of all the people involved, each individual and the communities as a whole, what do, what do you want and how do you get there and uh, uh, where are we uh, now and do we want to change and if so, how? Because uh, It's really interesting because like, it seems like it's so obvious because if we had kind of an instructable Stingiverse thing that was completely as open source as we could make it that really managed attribution and people could donate to it, that kind of a resource would be kind of what everybody wants, right? You'd have these plans and guides and help and all this, and it would be, you know, you wouldn't need a lot of money, right, for this to happen. Somehow it just hasn't really happened, this global platform to make this maker movement kind of uh, more permanent and and, and to really feed it without there having to be conferences or a magazine, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if if it ever will, but um, that's not necessarily the goal. Things are always changing and nothing lasts forever. Um, things morph and, um, and if things morph in a way, you know, just for instance, for me, if things morph in a way that isn't the way I want to go, then maybe it's not easy and maybe I'm disappointed, but then I can do something else and I have a lot of time and energy to do that something else. 
and maybe people will join me, maybe they won't. And if I need other people and I get them, great, then something else happens. And if I need other people and other people don't resonate with it, well, that probably means that isn't going to happen. And now I have time and energy to try something else. Yeah, totally, totally. And one Fair thing, enough. by the way, one thing, we, we, we haven't really talked about 3D printing a lot uh, no. at all. <laughs> I mean, all of this uh, stuff is adjacent kind, to kind 3D of, printing. Kind of, these are yeah. all, the, you know, these are the people that use this tool. But yeah. It's a good point. I mean, how transformative would you say was desktop 3D printing in all these hacker spaces and whatnot? I mean, I know how I feel on it. That it was yeah. But um, it, I mean, it opened a door that made it easier than like, say, using a five axis CNC router or something of that nature. Oh, yeah. You know, like the first 3D printer, uh, you know, the RepRap project um, was this international open hardware, open source project with lots and lots of people working on it. Uh, there were a few players who put poured their hearts and souls into it. One of the people who came along a bit later is the one who made the first complete 3D printer kit. And that was Zach Smith from NYC Resistor. And then uh, Bree Pettis, who was pretty much the founder of NYC Resistor, uh, became the CEO of MakerBot with uh, Zach as CTO and then Adam as CFO, uh, Adam Myers from also all three from NYC Resistor. And that 3D printer was so exciting. And there were so many people who helped make that real. Um, for free, you know, pouring their hearts and souls into it. And, uh, and now it's a for-profit company and suddenly they're making a bunch of money and they're getting a lot of um, attention and including um, uh, Stratasys. And there's another story I could go that way, but before I do that, if I do it at all, um, MakerBot, you know, in an objective sense, totally sucked. <laughs> that 3D printer was so <laughs> awful. Oh, the cupcake. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The cupcake was really bad. <laughs> but, it, but it could actually print it something. You know, it could print a little Yoda. You could recognize it and you could print a little shot glass and you could drink something from it. And that's what, what always was done whenever Brie and other people were uh, showing it around at hackerspaces and events and or, or on TV, which was going to happen not too long after that. But, but so many people were so excited about it, um, and that started so, and it was open source. So all these people start making their own versions, and the improvements fed back to MakerBot, and they made it better, and they got so much attention. They were getting all these people wanting to be engineers for them, and uh, really, really incredibly good engineers at that. And so it did grow to be something that actually worked kind of well, but the printers that exist now are just so much better. But of course, now any place, whether it's called a hackerspace, a makerspace, an innovation lab, a creativity lab, a fab lab, you have to have not just one, but a few 3D printers. I mean, that's just the iconic thing that everyone must see when they go in. Otherwise, it's not cool. Uh, but those machines are so much better now than they ever have been. They're actually reliable. They're kind of like with 2D printers, pa paper printers. They were they would always jam many, you know, like decades ago. And the drivers, you had to download drivers constantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and but now they're 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 totally reliable. There'll still be problems here and there, like all appliances. But 3D printers are almost there.
No, I, yeah, I agree. I think, I think we we're close. We, we talk, yeah. we're, we're close again this time to actually making it. Like now, we're already selling several million people a year, right? So it's like, but it's still a really small group. Like it's still a really small group out of the total population. And I love that. The, yeah, it is very linked to the hacker spacing. I love, by the way, that not only the cupcakes sucked, right? A lot of these other later printers kept sucking again and again and again. But I love the fact that that Zach Ukin at one point had the most uh, interesting. Twitter, because he was just like, "Is anyone down for a sailing class in Bali for two weeks?" <laughs> and, and he just exemplified this whole journey from just starting out, just soldering something together, and all of a sudden he was like, kind of done for a while at least. Uh, and he was just traveling. It was just like literally, like I'm taking flying lessons, and everybody's like, "What?" He has a captain's yeah. license. Yeah. So you know, just just you know, kind of briefly, you know, like the MakerBot. Uh, did the classic sellout thing the and a lot of people were really not just angry but rageful about that because so many people poured their heart and soul into this open source project for free uh and makerbot uh, uh got together with the company who was suing everyone uh in order to profit from that and they ended up selling to them for hundreds of millions of dollars and you know and and in the process um Bree lost pretty much all of his friends, including the two co-founders. And Zach was just so, so, so angry with all that. He didn't want to have anything to do with any of this afterwards. He had enough money, though, so he could go off and, and um, try to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. And I guess he's still on that path. I'm still ridiculously pissed off at that uh, uh, at Brie and yeah, there's so many people that really believed in that, and there's so many people that gave them. Cause, uh, so you were talking before that the printer sucked, but like because it was open source, nobody really said anything really negative about it. I think if it would have been a closed source product that they would have bought, because you were spending like, spending like two k for this kit, you know. But if you would have normally bought something like that in a store, you would have just complained like crazy. But because it was open source and it was 3D printing, everybody just kind of like knuckled down and never said anything. So they were actually get this kind of open source inoculation that helped them so much in the beginning. Yeah, it does make a lot of goodwill and people are very willing to make a lot of allowances as a result. But then when um, uh, it's being used for the profit of just a handful of people, uh, at the expense of all these other people who helped for free, then it was the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so so and and Mitch, do you know what you're going to do? Like, what are you going to keep inventing? Keep doing hackerspaces? Uh, what what, do you, what are your plans? Yeah, so you know, I live in Berlin, and I'm part of a lot of the hacker scene here. There's a lot of cool hacker spaces here, and there's a lot of events, and I help organize events. Just a couple weeks ago is the big every four year hacker camp here in um, Germany. And I poured a lot of my time and energy into that. And that was super, super fun. Um, coming up, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just continuing. As long as I continue to love uh, teaching and giving workshops and giving talks, I'll keep doing that. And coming up, there's a lot more travel in and around Europe. And I can do that all by train, which is super nice. It's so much more chill than hopping in a plane. And um, I'm gonna, I'll actually be in Eindhoven Maker Fair <laughs> um, at the end of this month. Yeah, and then I'll go to a, a small conference in Prague, and then I'll go do a thing in Paris. Uh, and then for winter, there will be the big uh, every year congress uh, put on by CCC in this year in Hamburg with 17,000 people. Wow. And I'll be doing that. And if for whatever reason that gets canceled, pandemic uh, allowing, <laughs> I'll organize 
uh, a smaller one, but a sizable one here in Berlin as I did last year when it was canceled last year. Okay, well, that sounds super cool. exciting, Mitch. Super cool. And uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks. This is The time went fast. So <laughs> thanks for putting up with my rants. <laughs> anytime, anytime, anytime. You can come back. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Yeah, Always. Fascinating. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore